1: offer subject to change valid for qualified residential
0: customers only service not available in all areas
1: restrictions apply
3: hey guys back at the playground again huh
2: yep you know what this playground could use a wine country heck yeah and some waves so we
1: could go surfing
2: oh (laughs) Ah, love that a redwood forest would be cool i'm in ah
0: ski slopes let's
2: do it um girl, go shopping wait
0: Did we just invent California?
2: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
0: Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.
1: Welcome to Forward Thinking.
0: Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, charge it, point it, zoom it, press it, snap it, work it, quick, erase it. I'm Jonathan Strickland.
3: I'm Lauren Pokeball.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. So,
1: hey guys. Hey Joe. Do you remember when last week we did a podcast about consumer technology? You know, uh,
2: yeah.
0: a week seems like an eternity now.
1: Well, especially when that week includes Dragon Con. Yes. yes. These uh, two just got back from,
0: and they're a little bit crazy. You might you might be able to detect my voice is not what it usually is because of Dragon Con.
3: Yeah, we, we both sound like 50% more like Tom Waits than usual. That's I right,
0: think. yes. The uh, the hosts have not been drinking, just the microphones. <laughs> Okay, what uh, is the future of dragons? You know, uh you would have found going out. To be robotic. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty oh, sure. I saw There some. you go. Yeah, but but no. What was your What was your yes? Com, uh, we did. We did consumer technology. I well, do remember this.
3: Yeah, and whether or not it will be as awkward in the future as it is now, and how that's portrayed in science fiction films.
1: Right. That maybe the idea that in science fiction and the movies, when we see the technology of the future, it's just too nice. It just works too well. It's unrealistic. Right. And one of the touchstones we referenced there was the movie Minority Report, which very often comes up in discussions about future consumer technology, because Let's face it, it has informed a lot of the post-2000 aesthetic about future technology.
0: Right. In fact, you could say that it was predictive of many different technologies. Uh, we're specifically going to be talking about user interfaces today, but that's not the only one in Minority Report that uh, has become kind of a... It's not a household term, and an emerging technology. Right? No,
1: sure. Some of the other things include their interesting, strange weapons in the movie. They've got these little non-lethal sticks they use. They've right. got jetpacks. They've got...
0: Robotic cars. Yeah,
1: self-driving cars that sort of hook onto these weird tracks. They and... have
0: the uh, the big data and Internet of Things, the, the world that responds to you as you move through it. So, for example, the personalized advertisements, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. These are all this is all stuff that we're seeing in some form or another today. And yeah. yeah.
3: And all of this came out in a movie that, that premiered in 2002. That's yeah. what, like five years before the iPhone?
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even those user interfaces that we now like when you when you see John. On Enderton, you know Tom Cruise's character moving his hands all willy nilly in order to sort through different stuff, and you think that kind of is how we deal with technology today, except we're actually touching a screen most of the time, not you know putting on gloves or whatever. Um, you, you might think, wow, this this movie it was incredibly prescient. Uh, although, if you look into it, you realize that there was a lot of work going on behind the scenes, but we'll get to that in a minute. Well, yeah,
1: let's start with talking about Minority Report itself. Uh So we don't need to discuss the plot of the movie too much, because maybe even if you haven't seen it, it's something you should experience yeah. as a surprise for the first time. Right. But it, it's a sort of futuristic crime-related thriller that deals with issues of free will and, and things like that. Uh, yes. But the technology of the movie is what we're focusing on today, and specifically the technology of how Tom Cruise and other characters in the movie manipulate virtual objects and data.
0: Yes. Yeah. We want to look at that and how has that shaped our user interfaces today and what might it be in the future? Okay. So when Tom Cruise
1: sits down or not sit, does not sit down, when Tom Cruise stands up at his computer in yeah. this movie...
0: What's it look like? What's going on? So it's a a big semicircular screen that he's working on, right? That's kind of giving him a panoramic view of lots and lots of data all at once. Well, there's Mm -hmm.
1: one thing I'd like to add to that, which is that it's a clear screen, which is something I'm going to focus on later. But yes, so a big semicircular, clear, transparent pane of glass. Yep. And what happens on that glass?
0: Well, that's where all this data gets projected, including video, uh, text, lots of different stuff going on at once. And in order to sort through this, instead of using, say, a keyboard and mouse, he dons these kind of electronic gloves, right? Mm-hmm. And those gloves are acting as his link to the data that's on the screen. Moving his hands around, he can select specific pieces of data. He can resize it. He can swipe it out of the way if he's done with it. Uh, one
1: of the things it's often compared to is that it looks supposedly like he's conducting an orchestra. I think that's even something the director, Steven Spielberg, was going for when they went into it. Yeah. He wanted it to look like, uh, Tom Cruise was standing there conducting all of his data as you would the different instruments in an orchestra as they come in and out and, and he, so he's, he's got his arms going all over the place. It's really all
0: about how would you physically manipulate the thing you're seeing on the screen knowing that you can't actually touch it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't touch the video that's playing on the screen. So how would you – if you wanted to make it bigger, how would you make it bigger? And you think, well, if it was like, you know, silly putty, something like that, that I could physically have in my hands, I'd stretch it out.
3: Yeah, yeah. you yeah. take the corners and you kind of stretch.
0: Yep. Uh, so
1: some other screens in the movie, one thing I've noticed is that they're also often clear screens, so they're transparent, but they have data facing one way on them, uh, and they're multi-touch displays. Right. So they are touch screens like your iPhone would be, but, uh, many historical touch screens could only deal with one contact point at a time, or maybe one or two contact points at a time. Uh,
3: but, but not interactively with each other. It was more like a, I can press this button, or I can press this button kind of issue.
1: Yeah. Mm. Um, Minority report shows screens and hovering touch base interfaces that accept multiple points of contact simultaneously, which we actually do have in consumer technology now.
0: Yeah, and the back in the day, it used to be where uh, if you had a capacitive touchscreen, that's the kind where uh, it's detecting. Uh, it has a very weak electric field that goes across the screen mm-hmm. when your finger, or really anything that's conductive, touches You're against a stylus. Yeah, well, <laughs> it has to be a special stylus for a capacitive. Yeah, uh, but. but But if it if it is a conductive material and it makes contact, then that interrupts the electric field. And in the old days, really, you could only get the one point of contact. And just think of the the think of like an invisible grid that's laying across that screen. And when you press against it, you are interrupting some of the lines on that grid. And that's how the the computer knows where you are touching on the display. Mm -hmm. There are other types of displays that rely on pressure. Which originally you could get multi-touch displays that did that, that, that could detect several different, uh, uh, actual pressure points. But the problem with those is that it, uh, they can wear down pretty quickly because you're actually having to push against the screen. It's not just gently touching. And then of course there are other ones that use cameras to actually detect where your fingers are. Now these would have to have either a a top-facing camera, you know, top-down camera, so you're thinking of like a table. Mm -hmm. Or it would be actually cameras mounted underneath the screen pointing up that are probably using infrared, something that's not going to interfere with us when we're looking at the display uh, so they can detect where the points of contact just are. Just
1: secretly shining into your eyes and making you blind over many
0: decades. <laughs> you know, but but on the flip side, you can use all your fingers when you're trying to manipulate data. So, so the, it's these worth are, it. The,
1: I'm just kidding. I don't think they do that. No, uh,
0: no but it, there are lots of different implementations to achieve this particular um, outcome.
1: Yeah, and so then we also can look at the specific gestures that are involved in the gesture UI in Minority Report. And some of them are ones that are very common now, like, uh, swiping.
0: Yep. Or the, the pinching or stretching for zooming in and out of images. I mm-hmm. mean, that's practically universal. So, and it's a little problematic because you have companies that have patented certain gestures and saying that they essentially own those. And that's caused some, um, Tension in the touchscreen screen <laughs> world. Speaking, what? Yeah. yeah. Hold on a second. You can patent the idea that you swipe
1: something to get rid of it.
0: Currently. Yes, you can. You or you can at least submit a patent to the, yeah, you can submit a patent to the patent office. And if uh, the patent office is uh, feeling in a capricious mood, they may very well award it to you. So as has
1: happened. If Lauren hands me a piece of her fan fiction and puts it on my desk and I swipe it off into the trash, Am I going to get sued?
0: No, but if Lauren writes a piece of fan fiction in electronic format and you design a program specifically designed to allow you to read fan fiction and that program includes the swipe to remove command that you have programmed yourself, you have probably uh, interfered with that. You you would need to pay a license. Yeah, oh. it's, it's chrono trigger fan fiction, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad we, I'm glad we uh, got to the bottom of it.
3: Thanks, Joe. Uh, that's a (laughs) relatively okay thing to write fanfiction about, I think.
1: Okay. Let's tell the story of Minority Report. Where did all these ideas come from?
0: Well, that's the thing is that it's not like, uh, they just invented the ideas out of whole cloth, that what happened was Steven Spielberg, who really wanted to have a a vision of the future that would be believable,
3: plausible, yeah, Yeah.
0: something where you feel, yeah, based upon the way the world is right now, I could see this kind of technology existing. And I believe the year of the movie is somewhere around 2050. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think originally it was meant to be 2080. Yeah. It got pushed back. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. So push forward. (laughs) Well, I guess it all depends upon your point of view. But yeah, it's, it's, um, at either, at any rate, what's interesting is not just that the technologies have started to appear, but they have appeared much more quickly than you would anticipate given the fact that the movie is based in 2050. We would, we would now think that the technologies of Minority Report are probably a little too conservative based upon where we are right now with a lot of those technologies. Even if they're in their infancy by 2050, they're going to be much further along.
3: Well, yeah, in 20 to 50 years, we, Sorry.
0: Singularity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, singularity. I mean, yeah. the fact that this movie exists is even just it's it's, it's just pure fantasy. Yeah. But yeah. at any rate, the he what he wanted to do was he wanted to say, all right, what's he, the Steven Spielberg? Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Uh, what he wanted to do was get the some some really smart people who are working in various fields, uh, trying to develop cutting edge technology. We're talking about stuff that's in the concept stage, not even necessarily practicable. Or if it were, it was something that was just a prototype. He wanted to get them together and talk about what the future might look like, assuming that these concepts and prototypes bear fruit, that they actually do become a viable means of doing whatever it happens to be. So the
1: big surprise is he said, now, let's not just have some writers dream up some stuff. Let's talk to actual technologists and scientists and see what they have to say.
3: futurists and – yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, so in 1999, he held a meeting. He uh, had a a two-day meeting uh, with several people, including the folks who were involved in the movie, as well as experts in various fields. We're talking everything from computer scientists, uh, automotive designers, architects, all sorts of different disciplines to kind of come together and say, all right, what will – the city of 2080 or the car of 2080 or the computer of 2080. What will it look like? How will it perform? How will it be different from mm-hmm. the way it is today?
3: Uh, yeah. And they all basically just hold up in a, in a hotel in Santa Monica.
0: Yeah.
1: I, one of the, I, I read one of the participants said, I think it was Jaron Lanier said that they went under the guise of being a dental technicians conference. Something
3: totally boring. Yeah. yeah <laughs> something
0: as boring as they possibly could manage so that no one would bug them. And yeah, the guest list included Jaron Lanier, uh, Neil uh, Gershenfeld, who was head of MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms, which is the best name for an organization ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the automotive designer, Harold Belker, uh, Sean Jones, who worked in DARPA's unconventional countermeasures laboratory. That sounds like a good lab. Yeah. Uh, John Underkoffler, who was the uh, he was a member of the MIT Media Lab at the time. There are actually quite a few videos of the MIT Media Lab showing off an interface that looks essentially like the one you see in the movie, mm-hmm. including the gloves, using the gloves to be the the uh, the point of connection between the user and the computer uh, and a lot more besides that. So there were some really uh important people in the in the space of design and engineering and science. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of just sat and hashed out ideas. I love some of the stories from that. Like they came up with this concept for a car that had essentially just a seat in it. Like you could sit down and just relax and then the car would take you everywhere you needed to go. And Spielberg's reaction was well where where are all the controls? And they said, well it's all voice controlled. You don't you don't need any controls. And then the Spielberg said, okay. What are the actors supposed to do when they're just <laughs> sitting in a car? And they say, "Oh, oh right, wow. yeah. I don't know. yeah, you got to show them doing stuff." This is why I think we also see, and we mentioned this in in the episode too, in Star Trek. You would think by the time we get to the world of Star Trek, oh, everything would be, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't need buttons. You wouldn't, I like that you're doing the flailing button pressing. Oh, thing. I was going
3: to get around to saying it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It's ever all the actors in Star Trek are either pressing one single button very effectively or 98 million buttons all at the same time. Go. Yeah. Yeah. The, um,
0: the whole thing being that if you don't have buttons to press, you're really just a bunch of people sitting around. <laughs>
1: so it's, it's a Star Trek economy. You got to come up with yeah. jobs somehow.
0: <laughs> so it's a, It's a cinematic. It's a cinematic uh, 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 concession, right? You have to say, "All right, well, maybe in the future we'll have this wonderful technology where we won't have any kind of the interface will be invisible." because it'll be so integrated into the experience. But for the purposes of a movie, we need to make some concessions so that there's something interesting to watch. Either that or we just cut cars from the film entirely because there's no point in having someone just sit there doing nothing. So then uh, you had uh, to, to look specifically at a couple of these people. Um, Jaron Lanier... Is someone that we may have mentioned in previous episodes? Oh
1: yeah, uh,
3: we talked about yeah, him Yeah, definitely. There was one I know in December 2013 called Virtual Eventuality, in which we spoke at length about him. So, so go check that out if you want to know a lot about him. But in brief,
0: he is the guy who popularized the term virtual reality. He may have even coined it, but you know who knows at this point. It's a lot of people were working on it at the time, but he definitely was one of the pioneers in virtual reality technology way back even in the 80s. Uh, and he was in that work trying to create systems where a physical person can experience a virtual environment in a meaningful way. And often we see that with big head-mounted displays, things that are uh, uh, allowing you to get a, a full look at the world so that when you physically move around, your perspective changes within that virtual world. This is something we're really pretty familiar with today things like the Oculus Rift are uh, are taking advantage of that same idea but it means that you have to figure out all right well what's the interface how do you interact with this virtual world so that the interaction doesn't feel artificial or unnatural mm-hmm. right so like holding a game controller in your hands and then interacting in this world that puts up a little bit of a barrier because it's not like the way you would interact within the actual real meat yeah, space yeah. it's a yeah. thing
3: that you have to learn very specifically how, how to use and and to fine-tune how you use it th- the same way that we all had to learn how to type at this certain point right
1: yeah. so jaron Lanier we should say didn't just work on overhyped and mega disappointing things like virtual reality he also worked on very popular things
0: okay now that hurt a little bit, but it's fair. Uh, yeah, he actually would go on to work on uh, things that had user interfaces that we're really familiar with now. you If you look at Minority Report and you see those gestures, it also looks a lot like what you might see uh, someone who's using a Microsoft Connect. He actually worked on the Kinect project, and we'll talk a little bit more about that too. So, he's been. Although you could argue that Kinect is not necessarily that popular either, <laughs> because a lot of people prefer to either turn it off or they went out and bought the Xbox version that didn't come bundled with the Kinect once it once that became available. Um, but yeah, he's he's certainly one of the instrumental people behind this. In fact, according to their memories, uh, we read um, an article that talked about this meeting in 1999 but it was you know the article was written several years after that meeting i mean like a decade after Mm -hmm. or more and uh and so you have to remember that people are relying on their memory of the event but he said he believes he brought a working pair of those gloves that had been they you know they've been playing with those in in various developmental labs for a while to show them off. He says, you know, this way I could actually show off what I was talking about instead of just, you know, having people try to imagine the concept. Mm-hmm. And that in fact is one of the things that made his way into the movie. Yeah, and
1: I've actually seen a video of people using gloves like that in action. Uh it was a I think a 2010 TED Talk with John Underkoffler.
0: Yeah, another person who was on that list, uh this guy's the one who was the former member of the MIT Media Lab um, and has worked in various companies uh one of the big uh, i would say evangelists of this sort of so user interface control. yeah definitely and um he apparently was the person who really worked to create the the gesture language used by tom cruise's character in the film uh to to sort through different data and select things and and was definitely working with spielberg to make it look like this kind of virtual orchestra conducting yeah. experience so uh, yeah, he has a TED talk that you can watch where he goes through all of this. And again, if you have ever used any sort of uh, touch screen or a a Kinect or any other motion controlled uh, interface, that's kind of like that, uh, it's going to look very familiar to you. Okay, but as
1: we mentioned earlier, Minority Report was actually very prescient in a lot of ways yep. of real technology that came later. I mean. Did it basically predict how we use touchscreens today?
0: I think Minority Report – well, I think it was predictive, but I don't necessarily think that the people behind the user interfaces were uh, would necessarily cite Minority Report as the inspiration. Because this work, as we said, in 1999 – I mean the whole reason why there were these discussions in the first place is because there were people working in, in media labs – who were already kind of designing this sort of interface. So what if Minority Report had never happened, if the movie had never been made, I think we would still be in that gesture-controlled world. It's just that we wouldn't have the cultural touchstone of Minority Report right. to refer back to.
3: Uh, right, and it might have been until uh, uh – Later films, like, for example, Iron Man or something like that, that we might have seen that sci-fi vision of the clear screens and all that. You know, it would have been up to whichever production designer on whichever film came up with the idea of, hey, if we put images and text right in front of the actor's face, it's a really easy way to make it visually interesting while they're really just typing on a computer.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you, if you ever uh, – there's there's <laughs> there are people out there, designers out there for actual – Uh, software and hardware who lament the existence of such science fiction films, particularly Minority Report, but also Iron Man is an excellent example where they'll be told by the business side, "Hey, can you make this look like such and such?" and they'll say, "All right, yeah, what works really well on screen may not necessarily translate into a a usable system in real space." Uh but we'll talk about some criticisms too, but the certainly the the hand gestures, a lot of that language did in fact uh translate over into real uses. And maybe some of that was Uh, was actually attributable to the, the depiction in Minority Report. So that whole, uh, pulling, swiping and pinching Mm -hmm. to zoom, that kind of stuff. Those sort of things I think may very well have become popular because people saw that in the movie and they responded positively. They thought, wow, that's such a cool way to interact. It makes a
3: lot of sense. Let's do that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I, what, you know, whenever I have, like, if I imagine I have multiple screens in front of me and there's something on one and I want it directly uh, in front of my eyes, I love the idea of being able to, to just reach
3: out and grab it and pull it.
0: Exactly. Sharp. So, uh, so it definitely was one of those that I think a lot of us intuitively felt this would make using computers so much easier for this specific use case. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important note to make. So, um, you know, and and like I said, you you had people who worked on Minority Report, or at least helped with this brainstorming session, who went on to work in some of these interfaces. So, like the Connect would be the big one, you know. But yeah,
3: so so, so it's a it's a self fulfilling prophecy a yeah, little bit. Yeah, um,
0: yeah, it's kind of like if if I were writing a science fiction movie, uh, you know, let's let's say that it's, it's ten years ago or so, maybe not that long, but it's several years ago. And one of my buddies happens to work in Google's Project X department, and they're working on the Google self-driving car, which has not yet become public information. And I'm trying to think of what's going to set my, my science fiction world apart. And this is, you know, I haven't to talked to the guys like, you know, I think self-driving cars are going to be a big thing. I don't think people in the future are going to drive. And I, I incorporate that into my story. Then the news breaks later that Google's working on this thing and that how far along they are. And then everyone's like, wow, you predicted something and then Google went out and did it. <laughs> that's that's the perception. Right. That's right. what it looks like. Yeah. When the real real story is that I was able to jump on something uh, because I heard a friend of mine say, oh, I think such and such.
1: Now, of course, one of the ways that we can definitely say that movies like Minority Report and specifically Minority Report in particular have influenced things at large is in the aesthetics of technology and popular culture. Absolutely. Uh, And in fact, that was mentioned by the author of one of the one interesting article I think we all read about uh, criticisms of
0: UI and Minority Report. (laughs) Are you talking about uh, Christian Brown? Yes. Yeah. uh, He's an animator and he wrote a piece in The All... AWL called How Minority Report Trapped Us in a World of Bad Interfaces. I thought this was, it (laughs) had some interesting observations. Yeah. And this goes into that, that element I was talking about earlier, where something that looks really good and compelling on screen may not necessarily be the best experience in real life.
3: And the fact that even the designers on Minority Report were at a certain point aware of that, because like your like your story with the self-driving car not having any buttons, you know, they, they knew that that's not what self-driving cars were really going to look like in the future, but they needed to give the actors something to do. Right. So. It,
0: it's the same argument I hear about uh, uh, Peter Jackson saying that they needed to make certain adjustments to lord of the rings and the hobbit in order to make it more cinematic now in that case they were wrong but i totally understand <laughs> and my, my bias might be showing uh,
3: sure but you know but you can see practical evidence of this in the well i guess i guess anecdotal note that I, not that many people are really using the connect because it's still a little bit awkward yeah and weird. i
0: think i think some people just well it's because i think in part that no one has come up with the killer application of the technology that has made it so compelling that people want to use it it's to me it's the same in a way as a uh, the Nintendo approach where they took a very they took a very uh, bold step with the Nintendo Wii and then with the Wii U saying that instead of trying to compete against the other console companies by by pushing the graphics and, and, uh, the processing power of their devices, they wanted to revisit and change the interface entirely and make the, the actual gameplay experience very different. And it was one that initially worked like gangbusters. It sold a lot of consoles, but it didn't seem to have a lot of staying power, which does start to raise the question, are gesture controls something of a gimmick that are they, they are very interesting to look at and they're very intriguing to us as people. But once we start getting actual and I, you know, not hands on experience, I guess, but hands off <laughs> experience that it loses its luster.
1: Yeah. Well, I've read some pretty interesting criticisms of gesture based displays.
3: Uh, yeah. One of the things that Christian Brown pointed out in that terrific article w- was that although a lot of these UI developers are, are referring to the gestures that we all use today as being very intuitive and natural, it, it's really – he he was saying that they're really learned the same way that we learn how to interact with any other piece of technology.
0: Right. Like just as using a mouse to manipulate something on a screen, that's that's a learned behavior. You know, you With s- a lot of practice, it becomes
1: second nature.
0: Right, but but it is learned just as these these like you were saying. Yeah, we don't naturally reach out and try to manipulate stuff that's not there and pretend like there is something there and then expect a result. If we're sane, so <laughs> and and that <laughs> or, was his, or not
3: five years old. Yeah. yeah,
0: right. His point was saying that he felt that we would need additional. Elements like haptic feedback to feel something. And then once you start to feel something like the presence of something as if it's really there, then we start getting closer to the way we actually interact with our physical environments.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, Gesturing with blank, invisible canvas as your as your object is not natural. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just inherently an unnatural activity. It's as learned as anything else. But once you're touching, sure,
0: that's, yeah. a baby could do it. You wouldn't have to be told how. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the only criticisms against this interface. You, Joe, you have a very, oh. a very practical one, right? Well, no, I, I can't remember where I've heard this, but I've heard somebody
1: make this point before, uh, and so it, it didn't originate with me, but the point is simply that you'd get exhausted. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, it looks really cool watching Tom Cruise stand there. Uh, and fling things around. But the power of something like a mouse and a keyboard is that it allows a lot of specific virtual movement to be conveyed through very little actual movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, supposedly, even the quite fit Tom Cruise got worn out on the set of Minority Report. So in between takes, he'd have to sit down and rest while he was shooting these scenes where he used the big computer. He was just getting exhausted doing all the arm motions. So... I don't know, maybe you could sell it as like a combination UI slash fitness device, (laughs) but would people actually want that? I mean, for one thing, y'all already mentioned what happened with the Kinect. um, But remember when the Wii came out, when it first came out, the Nintendo Wii, and you saw commercials of people using the Wii remote to play sports games. And they looked active, they're standing up, moving around a lot, Mm. they looked exciting and futuristic. Then came the reality you can really play almost any game on the Wii by sitting on the couch making tiny flicks of the wrist. And which game-playing posture did most Wii users select? Uh, mine was switching on the Xbox.
3: Oh, that You did
1: notice that. And yeah. when people, like, very first got it, they'd stand up and move around. Yeah,
3: it. and then quickly realize that they could just slouch deeper and deeper into their couch and, and make the tiniest gestures possible. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, and I, so I think generally the path of least effort is usually what people actually want.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, in certain cases, like a party game then something like motion controls has a lot of appeal to it, right? It's kind of like going out to actually play tennis with people.
1: Uh,
3: Sure, sure. Maybe like for the standing desk crowd, like like people who are actively trying to be more active in their day-to-day work life.
0: Yeah, and I think also there's this element that if I'm playing, if I'm jumping around like a lunatic in front of my my video game console and other people are with me, that's a party. If I'm jumping around like a <laughs> lunatic and I'm all alone in my house and I'm playing a game, that's a little weird. It's entertaining for your neighbors, though. It may also be entertaining for whomever has access to the camera on my <laughs> Connect, <laughs> but that's going into more of a kind of uh dark, like, hacking conspiracy sort of thing. <laughs> so...
1: No, I just imagine they've got, like, a streaming show called, like, Jonathan Jiggles.
0: Yeah, you know, it's that would be accurate. That'd be about the right name for it. Uh,
3: um, also, you'd have to have a much bigger office environment, wouldn't you? I mean, because otherwise I'd just be smacking Joe in the face right. every time I had to swipe something off the screen. And that's, yeah, that, yeah,
1: it does really seem like this would not work in a place where people were looking at
0: Well, you. It, do, it doesn't really work for all sorts of computer applications. That's the real thing we're getting down to, is that if if you are playing a game, or if for for some reason, you need to be able to sort through a lot of images, for example, quickly, and you want to do it in a way that's visually entertaining for the people who are there. Then this sort of approach kind of has a, it's got an element of the dramatic to it, obviously. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, that's, I see the appeal there. But if we're if like like Lauren, you're an editor. If you're editing. An article. You can't imagine, like, having to gesture all the way through so that you can pan through an article and highlight a section that needs notes. I mean, that would be crazy.
3: I I already vastly dislike working with word documents uh, not necessarily microsoft word documents but just just text documents right. on my smartphone or on anything that does not have a keyboard and mouse setup because it's i, I mean partially it's because I'm an old person and and the <laughs> and the touchscreen interface is a little bit uh less intuitive for me than a keyboard and mouse I know better how to get around something with a keyboard and mouse but also just the the functionality of touchscreen at this current moment is not such that it's caught up to right. that that keyboard and mouse right
0: and that's the that's the kind of we're transitioning a little bit not just with the criticism of gesture controls in general and the and the ui and minority report but also just the idea of what is the future of interfaces because the keyboard and mouse has been around since the early macintosh days before then it was just keyboards Mm -hmm. uh unless you were at xerox's park facility but Apple, with the Macintosh, really popularized the mouse and keyboard combo, which then became the standard for home computers, right? And it has remained that for decades now. And it works really well. It is a learned behavior. I mean, typing on keys and using a mouse, that's not a natural behavior either, but it's something that most people pick up pretty quickly. It's surprising to me that it has remained such a strong user interface, such, such a dominant one. I mean, just the keyboard itself, of course, goes all the way back to the typewriter. So the fact that this has remained largely unchanged since it first debuted is really surprising considering the rest of the technology has advanced so far. So is the future of a user interface with a computer, is it, is it locked down to that keyboard and mouse or? Are we going to see some other interface come into play and be the the really new way of interacting with computers?
3: Well, there's there's practical evidence of that as well, right, uh, Jonathan? You have a note in here about. Uh, Xbox One sales as they relate to the Kinect.
0: Yeah, so Xbox One when it originally came out, the Kinect was bundled with it, right? And then Microsoft announced that they were going to put on a cheaper Xbox One uh, going on sale. You know, there was already this this big story about how Xbox One sales were lagging behind the PS4, and everyone got excited. And it was revealed that the reason for the one hundred dollar discount was largely due to the fact that they would not bundle the Xbox One Connect with that version of the console. So this answered two things that a lot of gamers were really uh, hoping to hear. One, that it would be cheaper, and two, that they weren't going to be forced to have the Kinect because they just didn't see any value in that particular peripheral. And sales, as a result, doubled. So part of that is because it's cheaper. Part of that is because people were more excited about getting the console they wanted as opposed to a console plus a whole bunch of stuff they weren't necessarily excited about. Of course,
1: one might be able to come back and say that people might be more interested in gesture-based interfaces if they were just better, right? Oh, Uh, sure.
0: and, And, yeah, I think... I think there's two things. You need to have a really mature technology so that it's just like virtual environments. You need a really mature technology so that people are getting what they expect, you know, because the expectation of virtual reality back in the 90s was well beyond what it could actually deliver at the time. Mm -hmm. And then also on top of that, you need really compelling applications that take advantage of it.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, okay. So, so addressing kind of the first half of this, I think that part of it is right now is that the, the sensors and software that are required to make light based gesture control, like the connect work, are, are still really clunky and, and require these very carefully calibrated bits, uh, that, that are usually stationary, yeah. which limits the ways that you can use them pretty drastically. Mm-hmm. Um, that is starting to change with some upcoming devices, like, for example, the, the Mio armband, which you guys might have heard about. It, it's a stretchy band that you wear over your upper forearm, and it reads the electrical activity in your muscles to determine what gesture you're making with your hand, which is just so cool, I think. Um, oh. It also has this nine-axis inertial measurement unit sensor system, which is what we classically, like, macroscopically refer to as as being gyroscopic sensors, mm. but that's not really. They're they're all they're all little bits and bobs. Now. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. At any rate, um, yeah, those those will measure the the motion and rotations of your entire arm.
0: So instead of it just being these broad gestures, like these sweep your arm left or sweep your arm right, this now can be something much more precise.
3: Uh, yeah, it can tell when you're wiggling your pinky finger versus when you're wiggling your index finger, and in w- in which way you're wiggling it.
1: That's really smart. I hadn't even thought about that. It's sort of like taking the uh the mouse concept and mm-hmm. applying it to your gestures.
3: Oh, sure, yeah. And and a lot of people seem to think that the the Mio is going to change gesture control and, and you know, of course any any following technology that repeats it uh, the Mio's creators at Thalmic Labs have partnered with several smart glass companies, including Google, as well as uh, software developers for everything from like construction work to bike couriers to healthcare.
0: Yeah, I can see this being a, uh, a good advance to the, the approach. I don't know if, again, I think it will be something that will be really useful for specific applications and beyond that, mm-hmm. it may be more of a curiosity. But, uh, I, I'm, I remember playing a game On the Xbox 360 Kinect, so the previous generation of the Kinect, in which you were able to control a uh, tank-like vehicle by, you know, you'd put both arms forward to be moving forward. You pull one arm back to make a turn. You pull both arms back to reverse, that kind of thing. But they had to be really big, dramatic gestures, which Mm -hmm. meant they looked like you were wrestling with somebody in front of you in order to do this. Doing the Macarena right, and but and, but it's very it's also very similar to kind of the gestures you would see for someone who had to try and like like let's say they're presented with a a digital image that is seemingly has three dimensions you know it, it's on a two d screen, but maybe it's a globe, for example, mm-hmm. and in order to turn it, you might have to uh put your hand out a certain way and then slowly move it to the left or right, or you might have to put both hands out with like a foot apart in space. And then move one hand towards you while you're moving the other hand away to have it rotate. Something like this, you could have very precise controls where you just have two fingers out and you just very gently twist your wrist. And that would be precise enough to be able to give that same sort of command. That changes things dramatically. Oh, when you yeah. have that precision.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, other companies are working on this sort of thing, too, and for all kinds of different industries. There's, for example, um, there was a Kickstarter on these gloves that Imogen Heap, the musician, has famously used and did a TED Talk for, I believe I've mentioned it before on the show, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. the, uh, the Mimu gloves mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that similarly can control stuff. And, uh, and there's a few companies that are designing infrared systems that would integrate with your car's dashboard and your smartphone to let you like, control your music your ac your maps and and eventually possibly even like like monitor you to make sure you're not falling falling asleep at the wheel stuff yeah. like that well that's so, useful yeah <laughs> All
1: right. what's it do if you start falling asleep at the wheel Do I'd, you get a shock
3: i yeah bl- blair horns i'm not sure i i
0: am told at least that sending electricity through the body of someone who's falling asleep while operating a vehicle may not actually be the best <laughs> way of making sure they wake up
1: uh. <laughs> just starts playing take me home tonight right. at full volume yeah
0: yeah exactly just it it immediately goes to any eighties station with power ballads and things like that and and uh the windows roll down automatically, yeah. and yeah, the future's so bright, I gotta fall asleep <laughs> at the wheel,
3: uh. but- But, yeah, at any rate, this gesture control issue is not the only problem with these Minority Report style Yeah,
0: we mentioned another one earlier in the episode, right, Joe? Yeah, how about Clear Screens? How about Clear Screens, Joe? Well, it's
1: certainly not just Minority Report. This is almost ubiquitous now in movies. Uh Uh, You want to see... Looks high-tech, right? Well, Clear Screen. So you'll see there's a transparent glass pane somewhere, Mm -hmm. and either displayed on the glass or hovering out in front of the glass
3: because holograms work.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, this could maybe work because you uh, yeah, still yeah. got the, a screen basically. The of beginning kind. of this
3: is, is starting to show up. But yeah. uh sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah.
1: the problem is you'll see it from camera angles where it wouldn't actually show up in reality. Right. Uh but you'll see data. You'll see data on clear glass or floating out in front.
0: We're talking information not necessarily the character of Star
1: Trek. Yeah, the not the Lieutenant No. Yeah. Or you'll see visualization, whatever it be. You might be they might be watching kitten videos. <laughs> All right. Now, obviously, transparent... I
3: would totally di- watch Tony Stark <laughs> watching kitten videos. I'm sorry. Please continue. Yes.
1: <laughs> obviously, transparent displays, whether they're solid screens or the hovering virtual displays, have cinematic appeal uh, because they not only look futuristic and kind of beautiful but they make it easier to see both the user and the data or the visualization on the screen from many different angles. So You Mm -hmm. can shoot from in front or behind or wherever you want, and you can see it from all the angles. If you're looking at an actual opaque computer screen and you want to show birthday, both the person using it
0: and what's on the screen at the same time you don't have a lot of options right it's it's pretty much over the shoulder or some angle not too far from that
3: oh yeah or doing that ridiculous thing where they project the light from the screen right. onto on the, the actor's face, face. Uh, yeah the character yeah. has my the character
0: has to wear glasses so that you can <laughs> see what's actually on the screen right. yeah so
1: I don't think that clear screens are going to become a big thing in the consumer technology space. Please, please explain why you feel that way, Joe. Well, one of the one of the reasons is that I would think screens like this would be very sensitive to light conditions in the room, right? Mm-hmm. The just the room where you're using it, much more so than the screens of today. I mean, you can have a bad enough problem even with the highly optimized opaque screens we have with glare, right? if there's the sun behind you or, you know, you're sitting next to a window. If you're looking at a clear screen, that just seems like it opens up even more potential problems for not being able to see exactly what you're supposed to be able to look at.
0: Yeah. If you don't have an opaque back and a source of light is on the other side of the screen, then that's going to interfere with anything you're looking at on that transparent screen.
1: Yeah. So in that case, it seems like it would only be useful if it were a stationary transparent screen in a fixed place where the conditions behind it don't change. So like it's in front of a wall or something, in which case, what's the point? Uh, yeah,
3: Sure, sure. I mean, furthermore, how obnoxious would it be if you're trying to get work done and And you have a clear screen. So your coworkers behind you are, I don't know, like doing a little dance or goofing off or whatever it is that they do.
0: That's often what we do on my (laughs) aisle. You guys are on the other aisle over. Yeah. My aisle is the Josh and Chuck aisle where it's Dance Party USA every day.
1: He's on the crazy aisle. Lauren and I are on the boring aisle. (laughs) That's
3: the way that we like it, I think.
1: That's fine with me. I'm an extrovert. I I dig my (laughs) aisle. Okay. So here's another problem with clear displays uh as of now they tend to force the viewer into very narrow viewing angles right so it's hard to see if you're looking obliquely this wouldn't be that big a problem for one user if you're looking dead on but it's harder to share screens that way if you want to have somebody look next to you yeah it gets harder and harder it starts to be a personal space issue at that point right it might be difficult to discern the intended relative depth of objects in a field of vision when okay. there's a transparent screen, or you could just have mistakes, right? You, you could have trouble telling what you're seeing through the screen versus what's on the screen. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing is systems like this today tend to be very expensive and yeah. hard to produce.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, though, just this year, one thing I did want to point out is that Researchers at an MIT lab announced they had been developing a new method for producing see-through displays based on nanoparticles that react to different colors of projected light, producing images on clear glass. So this new method would, according to them, be relatively cheap and simple, and it would offer a wider viewing angle. Uh, In a demonstration, they used silver nanoparticles, which produced these blue images, these blue visualizations on the screen. Mm -hmm. They said that other particles could be used to attain a full-color effect. Oh, cool. And even eventually, they said you might be able to turn this stuff into basically just a plastic film that you could spray over the top of any clear pane of glass wow that'd be amazing so you could have like smart windows that way yeah yeah now i can see places where this might actually be useful say if you want to have a heads-up display on the windshield of a vehicle right okay or if you're talking about a device that's optimized for augmented reality like a uh like smart glasses or a window of some kind Mm -hmm. I, i don't know what purpose it would really serve on a window that wasn't on a vehicle but maybe there's something i haven't thought of well i
0: mean there's there's things like i've seen for smart windows things like uh you know uh, up-to-date weather predictions things of that nature it's just stuff that you're looking at the window you're maybe you want to control uh the how dark the window is because that would that could be uh incorporated with an led kind of setup also just other stuff like you know like stock tickers it tends to be all the sort of widgets that they tried to force on our televisions about 7 or 8 years ago uh-huh. they're now trying to force on our windows yeah yeah
1: and so i can also see it if you've just got some kind of general device in the future that's for augmented reality it's a tablet that you're supposed to hold up to the world and see through with data added or something like that. But if you're talking about normal laptops, tablets, phones, things where you're just mainly going to want to be using the Internet, checking your email, composing documents, I really don't see the appeal of clear screens. Yeah.
0: I, I tell you one thing I would love to see in a clear screen uh, implementation in the movies. I think it would be both funny and and. Uh, amazing at the same time, which is that if you're viewing it from the angle of the user, you get whatever the supposed, whatever you're supposed to see. But if you go around the other side, you get the backside of that. So if it's a video of someone talking (laughs) and you You go around the back, back you see the back of their head. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, that would be funny. It would be pointless. Yeah. But because that's and of sort course of
1: that wouldn't actually work. But well, I mean, well, unless you went to a lot of trouble. Right.
0: It's essentially the same idea as the freestanding hologram, except in this okay. case, it's on a screen. You know, the idea being that you can walk. 360 degrees around the projected thing and see it from all angles. Except in this case, because it's on a screen, you would only be able to see the yeah. front and the well, back. But
1: like if you're watching a YouTube video, you'd literally have to have a companion video filmed from the opposite <laughs> angle. Which is
0: why I think it'd be hilarious. You just, yeah. you never bother explaining how yeah. this was ever achieved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, okay, well, it's that's just pretty the good. way it is. That's
1: pretty good. Okay, I, I want to talk about another thing in Minority Report. Okay. Voice controls.
0: Yeah, this is something that uh, we've seen a lot of work done over the decades. I mean, even a, a futurist Ray Kurzweil worked quite a bit in voice controls. Oh, yeah. yeah.
3: Basically, they were one of the first, well, not voice controls necessarily, but voice recognition was mm-hmm. one of the first things that computer programmers like Kurzweil started working on way back in the day.
0: Yeah. And uh, it's tricky stuff, right? I mean, you you have a lot of different variables to contend with. But in general, we've seen a lot of progress. Yeah. So, and,
1: there's a lot of difference between simple voice control and voice recognition and speech control, which implies natural language processing. Right. Those are two totally different things.
0: But we made a lot of progress in both, uh, and, and so it's been really interesting to see that. However, even seeing that, that progress, I'm curious, this one's definitely more anecdotal for me because I don't have any surveys that back up anything, but I'm curious, how many people really regularly use voice control for their various uh, devices, whether it's a smartphone <laughs> or a tablet or the Xbox One Connect also has voice controls? Xbox, turn off. Yes. Now, if you are still listening to this podcast, you are not listening to it on an Xbox, nor are you... Uh, uh, Or you have just dis- disabled the voiceover controls. <laughs> and if you're, you're not a listening t- to Jonathan, it, Jonathan, you just <laughs> pulled some mischief. You
3: just <laughs> turned it
0: off. Yeah.
3: I don't personally know anyone who who uses a lot of voice control options, at least around me. Maybe it's one of those things that they feel kind of foolish doing. And so yeah. they only do it when when they're kind of hanging out by themselves.
1: I thought people mostly only did it in the company of others because it was funny well, or,
3: yeah, yeah. Or that thing, or right.
0: they might do it in the car, right? Yeah. They yeah. might, they might have, if they have a setup where yeah, they can, sure.
1: yeah. Hey Siri, what does my armpit taste like?
0: Or, or, or <laughs> something along text my wife. I'll be home late. kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I do know one person who does use it. Um, at least I, I've witnessed him use it a few times. Uh, uh, Daily tech news show host Tom Merritt. Uh, I saw, I hung out with him at DragonCon this past weekend and he was using it in order to text people, to call people. So that way he could keep his eyes up so he wouldn't run into folks. Uh, and DragonCon is an extremely congested area for pedestrians, lots and lots of people. So, Add into that the fact that half of them are looking down at a screen, and you definitely have some issues where you could be bumping into people, and you've got all these costumes and everything. So he was using it because it was a way for him to navigate without, you know, putting his his gaze down on a on a screen, and it really helped him out. So I can understand that, but I, personally, my own use, I, I get very um, self conscious about. Not not so much talking to a device while people are watching. I mean, there's a little bit of that, too. But just how accurate is it recording what I'm saying? So I've used voice to text <laughs> in order to send text messages. But then I go and I proof the message before I send it. So I make sure it's not saying something just totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, beyond what I tend to text <laughs> people. And,
3: Unintentionally ridiculous. Right. Yeah.
0: And at that point, I've spent enough time initiating it, speaking into the device, reading over it, and then making any changes, I could have just typed it in that time. So maybe voice controls still are not quite at the level of sophistication where that it feels really natural. But again, we run into a lot of the same issues we see with gesture control. The idea that in certain environments, voice control just isn't ideal. In our situation, in our office where we have writers and editors, clearly this would not be a great a Great user interface because we'd all be interfering with one another, not to mention driving each other up the wall with mm-hmm. all the talking. So uh, it's another one of those that I, I, I love the idea, but I don't see it replacing, at least for the actual home computer experience the mouse and keyboard. And keep in mind, voice controls for PCs have been around for years. Mm-hmm. They've oh, just sure. recently gotten good enough for you to actually use them, but they've been around for a while. Yeah. Well, at any rate, if we don't live in a world that is dominated by the user interfaces of minority report, I'm sure we're still going to see examples where they will come into play.
1: Yeah. I, I do hope we get to see those little spiders
0: that crawl into the building and look for your eyeballs. Right.
1: Uh, or,
3: yeah, those are my favorite future technology.
0: You know, I've already had surgery performed on my eyes once. I Did you get one of those things, peeling up your bandages, trying to peek at your eyes? No, I didn't get one of those. Um that's uh, good. Yeah, they, it I'm was glad. it was more octopus-like than spider-like. But at any rate, if you guys out there have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, maybe there's another science fiction film that has a vision of the future and you really want us to discuss it and look into it and, and talk about whether or not it's realistic or if it's not realistic, why? Let us know. Or maybe there's just some other topic about the future you're really curious about. Send us a message. You can drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Google+. Our handle at all three is FW Thinking. We look forward to hearing from you, and you'll hear from us again really soon.
3: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by
1: Toyota. Let's go places.
2: Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. (laughs) Ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah,
0: ski slopes. Let's
2: do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait.
0: Did we just invent California?
2: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
0: Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect
1: place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end.